Welcome back to the program. So today, I'm not going to say a prayer. I'm going to, no, I'm not going to pray spontaneously. I'm going to instead pray the prayer of reparation to the most sacred heart of Jesus. We're in this nine day of novena. You'll hear that on Sacred Heart Radio quite a bit. If you tune in during the course of the day, you'll hear uh, the prayer of the novena to the sacred heart of Jesus. I do encourage you to do that. It's not a long prayer. I prayed it yesterday on the program. And you can easily find it if you Google it. Uh, EWTN has it on its site. It's very prominent there. So, uh, But I am going to pray an act of reparation to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. And this is connected to St. Margaret Mary Alacoque and the revelation of the most sacred heart of Jesus, especially because of the ways that we have neglected, have been indifferent, have blasphemed, have been sacrilegious in our own relating to this revealed love of Jesus. So, Let's begin with that prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. O sweet Jesus, whose overflowing charity for me is requited by so much forgetfulness, negligence, and contempt, behold us prostrate before your altar in your presence, eager to repair by a special act of homage the cruel indifference and injuries to which your loving heart is everywhere subject. Mindful, alas, that we ourselves have had such a share, have had a share in such great indignities, which we now deplore from the depths of our hearts. We humbly ask your pardon and declare our readiness to atone by voluntary expiation, not only for our own personal offenses, but also for the sins of those who, straying far from the path of salvation, refuse in their obstinate infidelity to follow you, their shepherd and leader, or, renouncing the vows of their baptism, have cast off the sweet yoke of your law. We are now resolved to expiate each and every deplorable outrage committed against you. We are determined to make amends for the manifold offenses against Christian modesty in unbecoming dress and behavior, for all the foul seductions laid to ensnare the feet of the innocent, for the frequent violations of Sundays and holidays, and the shocking blasphemies uttered against you and your saints. We wish also to make amends for the insults to which your vicar on earth and your priests are subjected, for the profanation by conscious conscious neglect or terrible acts of sacrilege of the very sacrament of your divine love. And lastly, for the public crimes of nations who resist the rights and teaching authority of the church which you have founded. Would, O divine Jesus, we were able to wash away such abominations with our blood. We now offer in reparation for these violations of your divine offer the satisfaction you once made to your eternal Father on the cross, 
and which you continue to renew daily on our altars. We offer it in union with the acts of atonement of your Virgin Mother and all the saints and of the pious faithful on earth. And we sincerely promise to make recompense as far as we can with the help of your grace for all neglect of your great love and for the sins we and others have committed in the past. Henceforth, we will live a life of unwavering faith, of purity of conduct, of perfect observance of the precepts of the gospel, and especially that of charity. We promise to the best of our power to prevent others from offending you and to bring as many as possible to follow you. O loving Jesus, through the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary, our model in reparation, deign to receive the voluntary offering we make of this act of expiation. And by the crowning gift of perseverance, keep us faithful unto death in our duty and the allegiance we owe to you, so that we may one day come to that happy home where you, with the Father and the Holy Spirit, lives and reigns, God, world, without end. Amen. And with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Without further ado, let's dive into our interview with Sister Mary Eucharista. Well, I want to welcome to the program a regular. Sister, you have become a regular. I just love the, <laughs> knowing that there's nothing regular about Sister Mary Eucharista, a sister of Mary, mother of the church, especially this week in the life of the church's calendar. There is absolutely nothing that is regular about Sister Mary Eucharista. Hey, <laughs> welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Tom. And blessed be God that you and I can both be speaking about the thing that I believe uh, is the most important thing in the world, but besides which it's my husband, Jesus. Yes. Oh, yeah. And I love that you do that. I love that you say that because it, 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 it still has that... What what did you just say? Value to it that um, you know the great great majority of people are just going to say, I don't think about Jesus in that term, right? I I, I would use the term Lord, Savior. I, I personally would probably say Savior before Lord, because <laughs> he always seems to come in as like my lifeguard, like rescuing me out of the turbulent waters. Um, shepherd, I'm regularly asking him to be a good shepherd. And then the great high priest who is uh, interceding with the father and pouring and winning good gifts for my life. Those would be the ones I do not think of Jesus as in terms of husband, right? So there is a really why, special... And really, when, when a man is referring to that, it sounds extremely weird because um, how can Christ husband, you know, the male side of the human race, but in actuality, God calls us into that receptive, all of us, men, women, everyone, into that receptive place that uh, makes Christ the bridegroom of everyone, everyone. The, the sister, the religious sister is simply that, uh, we wear that veil and we show that visage that is a prophetic witness to the world to come where all 
our bridegroom, but I totally hear you. Please carry on from where you were because that is beautiful what you're saying there. Thank you. Well, I, um, one of the things that I love to emphasize sister, Mm -hmm. when I'm like helping to foster a deepened understanding of the faith is to, um, break people out of an overly systematic approach to the faith. Now, okay. I'm a systematic theologian, right? That's my PhD is in systematic theology, but I'm speaking as a systematic theologian and saying, when many people learn the faith in a way that involves a system of ideas, it's often done from a standpoint of staying in control, where we're able to move around. I don't want to use the word manipulate because it carries with it psychological meanings, but I actually mean the ability to keep a safe distance and manage who God is by managing the beliefs we have in God. And I prefer the way in which systematic theology functions within a broader mystery that involves great paradoxes where more than one truth of the faith must be upheld at the same time. If in fact the faith is going to be understood at all. So We are members of the body of Christ. He is our elder brother in faith. And yet he's also the head of the body. He's also bridegroom and we're the bride. And so when you, boom, drop the bomb and say, Jesus is my husband, it's from that standpoint, that particular facet of the mystery of our relationship with Christ, where he's the bridegroom and we're the bride. And that's very intimate. It's very uh, profound when we think about that relationship and applying it to God and to the Son of God. So it, uh, I would love for you to share a bit more about what that means. Because I can talk about what it means to have Jesus as Lord, as Savior, as Shepherd. What does it mean to you that Jesus is one whom you can address as husband? Well, I will say that when I was 12 years old and I read this book called The Way of Divine Love, which told the story of Josefa Menendez and her relationship with Jesus, where he would appear to her even in the kitchen and she's holding pots and pans. And at a certain point, she said, Lord, uh, oh, Jesus had just come as, a, as an infant and he was she was holding him and she suddenly had this pot of soup handed to her and she said oh my lord you're going to have to just take care of yourself right now and she went and grabbed the pot and he held on to her neck while she carried the pot to where it needed to go and I remember being pretty fascinated by this but disturbed to hear I mean in my 12 year old girl's mind that uh she's calling him husband spouse this is kind of weird and I was very perplexed. And as I was reading this stuff, I was thinking, um, I hope that if I'm called to religious life, I don't have to think of Jesus as that because I don't want to do that. That's just weird. I mean, to me, a 12 year old boy would be the most uh, applicable, you know, spouse figure I could think of. And Jesus, in my opinion, in my in my young life was not a 12-year-old boy, he was a guy, 
and anyway, I read later in Father Lassance, who was a, uh, a, he was a prolific writer for in the early American church, or at least the mid-American church, like early 50s and around that time. And he wrote a book called The Girl's Guide, um, Catholic Girl's Guide. And every good Catholic girl had one of these, but it was passed down to me from my mother. And I read in there that young girls should not read about Jesus or understand Jesus in that area of spouse when they're too young because it turns them off. And I was like, oh boy, I remember that. And if I had not asked myself that question at the time, I wouldn't have not, you know, I wouldn't have recalled that this is really something that first of all, nuns do and that 12 year old girls don't think is very cool or interesting. So later when I was 18 and I realized God was yes, indeed calling me to religious life. Um, I still didn't really cherish that notion until I turned 21 when I did enter and I realized, um, well, I was in with all these nuns who had, I had seen dressed as brides going up the altar with a candle and a bouquet and they received Jesus and pronounced vows to him in their bridal gowns. And this was a bridal ceremony. And before, you know, since the time I was a novice all the way to the time I took perpetual vows, in my first community, that's when I realized, yeah, this is truly um, a, a ceremony that is not just a ceremony. This is a reality. And I would look at the, the shroud of Jesus and say, Jesus, you're my husband. So I'm just going to kind of look at you. This is like your, I mean, this is your size. Whoa. And please don't, don't judge me too much, but I was saying, you got pretty broad shoulders. I like that. And wow, you are at least this size to this size, which is, you know, he was a decent male size. And I was thinking, I think I got a pretty good deal here with the husband that I got. And besides he's risen. So this is pre, this is resurrection, but also pre-resurrection image because obviously Jesus's resurrection um, impacted the shroud. But I well, sister, I, I want to. I, 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 oh, go ahead. I'm so sorry. I'd love to. You, you said something in passing that I'm betting most Catholics have never seen, and that is a profession of a woman religious, and um, the way that it involves in your time. And here's my question: Is it still happening like that, where women religious who are coming forward to profess their, you know, simple vows, their first vows? Uh, if they are um, dressed as brides, if that is still a uh, custom in, in, in today? Um, I don't know if it is. It is a custom in some communities. Mm -hmm. Some communities have the women dressed as brides as before the, you know, prior to their novitiate, mm -hmm. where they would receive their habit from the altar and then receive a name. Some do not receive the habit until after the novitiate. And then some of them wear bridal gowns at that point, but others do not. And others, as in our former community, would have worn the bridal gown uh, at the time of their professional or, or their, uh, their perpetual profession. Okay. And um, in our community, we decided to forego that, not because it wasn't beautiful and charming, but because um, I think it was just for the sake of... Um, practicality and also a lot of us are working right there and 
you know, in our, in the public, in the view of the public and, you know, to be a young sister back in the day where, yeah, kids, like I looked at my eighth grade teacher when she went up the aisle and she was not in her habit. She was in a bridal gown. It was like a little bit of a shock, but it was also kind of cool. Um, but I don't know. I think I, 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 I don't know how many communities still do that, but it is an impressive ceremony because it brings to mind the reality that this is a bridal ceremony. And the sister, at least in our former community and also in our present community, we use the words of St. Agnes, um, where uh, we use some scriptural words, you know, in the Song of Songs and also um, the words of St. Agnes uh, to her spouse. Uh, I have been wed to the the the, the spouse uh, of, I mean, I am the spouse of Christ. Um, and there is a whole line that goes with that, that is so beautiful and that I could have uttered until this moment, until it just, as soon as I went to tell you it, when you needed to me. utter it. Isn't exactly. That so, but anyway, it was, um, <laughs> it'll come to you. Oh, the, I am the bride of him whom the angels serve. Ooh. In fact, funny little story. Um, this one sister accidentally said, I am the bride whom the angels serve. And we all looked at each other like, what? Yeah, they don't. But maybe they do. But no. And then she, but she missed it. She didn't know that she had said that. So we told her later. She was like, "I didn't. I didn't say that." Oh, oh my goodness. My goodness. Uh, so uh, she's probably mortified. The poor. Yeah, like the think. angels are serving me. But I mean, the angels are honored because angels are profoundly humble. They don't worry that they're serving mere human beings. They are honored to do God's will, and that's what they're doing. They're constantly working. Oh, I love that. that. I love yeah. what you just said. I never thought of, I never like had my mind go down that specific line of thought about the angels, that the angels aren't bothered by serving beings that are lower than them. They're delighted to serve us because that's God's will for them. Uh, that is beautiful. I, I mean, what a beautiful truth that we can mimic, right? We can imitate that truth in our own way um, because we're often put into situations where we are given the opportunity to serve people or serve in a situation that's really not that attractive to us or is repulsive to us or we would consider less than is what is suitable for us. And I, all I'll need to do now is remember the angels. Uh, yeah. I love that. Well, angels, you know, I remember um, coming to this reflection when uh, a very wonderful priest um, was giving a talk at our at the CMSWR uh, convention for, it was actually the uh, Sisters in Formation. It was a conference that we went to that's a long, it's a week-long conference. And he said, have you ever realized it was during the week of the Holy Trinity, just like this is the week of the Holy Trinity. And he said, the Trinity is completely humble. The Trinity is completely and absolutely humble. And this name's this priest's name is Father Gill, and all the nuns know him. And whenever I start talking like Father Gill, the nuns all know, oh, Father Gill, right? <laughs> anyway, he... That means you he, can't take credit, right? You can't no, take credit. I, oh, I, and I don't want to. Old. No, no, this is... Um, he was talking about the collects of the church or the, the prayer that is prayed right after, you know, the first formal prayer in the Mass um, after the penitential rite. And he said the Trinity is so 
humble that they have, I mean, no, I mean, even though there's a procession of the father is, you know, the only begotten of the father is Jesus. And he is the same substance as the father and the Holy spirit is the love between the father and the son, but there's no, Oh, you're bigger than me. So you get to go first or, Oh man, why do you go first? How come I can't go first? This is all of that kind of struggle is the effects of original sin, which angels don't have. They don't have the effects of original sin, but we do. We don't even know what it is like to peer through eyes that are truly humble. And that's why we can in receiving communion, receive Jesus, who is meek and humble of heart, and he wants to give us this humility. And the only way we can ever really attain it is in a, in a supernaturally infused way is to receive it from, from him because he is the most humble. But our angels do that too. Wait till we talk about angels in October. <laughs> Hi, this is Dr. Tom Curran, and you know me as the host of Sound Insight. I am also letting folks know that as a realtor licensed in the state of Washington and in Idaho, I love serving Catholic families and others who are discerning a move for yourselves. It's much more than buying or selling a home. It's discerning a whole new life. If that's something that you would find uh, a help in, if I could be of service to you, please be in touch. You can find out more at drtomcurran.com, drtomcurran.com. That's Sister Mary Eucharista today joining me on the program. I love having Sister Mary Eucharista on, especially we're coming up to this beautiful solemnity, the solemnity of the body and blood of the Lord coming up this Sunday. Um, Sister, uh, you know, thanks for being with me on the program today. So um, you... Uh, I want to I want to probe a little more into this, like the the facet of bride, the facet mm -hmm. of bride. And um, when I think about um, what it means to be a bride, right? So I think of Carrie, my wife, my bride. Um, there's a way in which she's set apart for me. She's set apart from all women for for me, and I'm set apart for her. And that language isn't bad. Set apart. But I, I like different language. I like held in reserve. There's a held in reserve quality that Carrie and I share in our relationship. Like we hold in reserve a, uh, some, you know, I think traditionally they would call it the secret of your marriage. That there was a, a, a realm of intimacy that wasn't intended to be shared out in the open. It was held in reserve for the beloved. And so I, when I think about bride, and if I think about, it, is there any aspect of my relationship with Jesus that would have a bridegroom bride-like quality? You use the term receptivity, and I, I, I would translate that, and you reflect on this, that there's a way in which the Lord is inviting me into his heart in a place, in a space that is held in reserve for me. And there we can commune. We can have this beautiful exchange, this intimate exchange of love that is held in reserve for me. And 
Um, and you know, that's that's a one way of expressing this idea of the bride-like quality, the bride dimension of our relationship with the Lord. H- how does that strike you? I think it is exactly what is replicated. Uh, this whole, all of this language is about the soul that is brought into or invited into consecrated life. And the very, all the words you mentioned, um, set apart, held in reserve, secret, realm of intimacy. This is all about dedication to one thing. And I like to think of a dedicated phone line for a fax machine, perhaps. That's it. For me, that brought out what consecration is. It's like nothing else can use that line, just your fax machine, even though you and I both called probably on fax machines and uh, realized but, that. But I, at least I know the reference. There you go. Right. A fax machine to our present audience might not. Sister, I was, uh, I want to let you go on your point. I just came from a meeting and she was saying, well, do you have a statement for that? And I said, well, this company, I tell you their, their documents, their statements are so old fashioned. I swear they use a dot matrix printer. And she's looking at me and I'm like, you don't know what a dot matrix printer is, do you? And she's like, (laughs) no, I do not. I'm like, okay, I'm really old. That's so, hilarious. But uh, so at least fax machine, sister, you yeah. just entered the realm of old. But what you're no. talking about is something yeah. incredibly fresh and new, vibrant and vital. Right. I'll have to get a new reference. But yeah. I is, like the dedicated um, line. That's, yeah. Uh, you know, the it's red a, phone on the president's desk. There That's you a go. Line, right? Red phone. So the, um, you know, as long as it's a cell phone, because you don't want to have a line that's on a cell on a phone now that's that will be old anyway. But um, you've got um, that that dedication going on. And in in if a person is being held in reserve, hmm, I I love the realm of intimacy and the set apartness and the consecration element. And I think every human being is a bride in the sense that with the eternal life, uh, part of our invitation from God, the wedding feast of the lamb, he is the bridegroom and every person there is going to be the spouse, the bride. But like I said, it's hard for men to, to, to get into that as much because they can't break away from this human condition, which renders them the bridegroom and another bridegroom in on the scene isn't really a friendly thought. So um, that's something, you know, the word bride actually came from St. Bridget. Did you know that? And she is the person who became the original bride. Um, A bride was called a bride after St. Bridget. So this is, um, yeah, she was, um, St. Bride is somehow sometimes the reference to St. Bridget. And it's because her purity, her dedication, her her, uh, her whole sense of consecration, everything about her radiated what a woman should be coming to her husband. And indeed, the church is a bride and we are the church. And in coming to our bridegroom, Jesus, this is this is our this is our destiny. The church is the bride of Christ and sisters religious consecrated uh, persons are, are the bride of Christ. And that is 
replicated by what is going on when she makes that act of consecration, which becomes total at the time of her perpetual vows and is only consummated in eternity. Sister, I mean, you're speaking about like these truths that have a definitely a mystical quality and a mysterious dimension to them. And I hear you, you know, share about them in, in a way that's so very natural. Um, I think about, and again, I'd love your reflection on this as someone who's living a consecrated life. Um, when I think about consecrated, it, it's that idea of what is set apart, what is consecrated belongs to God. You know, it used the term dedication. And so it's, if it's set apart, if it's given over to, it, it belongs to God. And, and, and it's so fascinating, this dynamic, because the Lord freely gave us life, gave us the gift of life. And now he's asking us, he's inviting us, he's beckoning to us, belong to me. Right. On the one hand, we all belong to God at one level by the fact that our very existence is radically dependent upon him to take the next breath. On the other hand, there's a dimension of belonging to him that involves our freedom, that involves our act of saying yes to giving ourselves over to the Lord. So that idea of um, like coming forward dressed as a bride, coming forward on the day of one's own, you know, uh, profession, perpetual uh, of perpetual vows or the novitiate, whatever stage. There's a way in which I, I it sounds like what you're saying is, you know, um, we're, we're freely choosing to belong to the Lord freely, completely, forever. Well, that's exactly right, and but it has to happen as a response to an invitation from the divine. So how does that work? Well, and this is kind of going down the road of consecrated life rather than specifically the Eucharist, but uh, when a soul receives an invitation from God, they know that God is asking something of them that they can refuse because Many, many people who have been invited cannot commit because it's just not part of either their ears are deaf to the call or in listening, they can hear, but they are unable to say yes because of a variety of reasons. Um, one of them being a, a, an inability to commit to something as, you know, seemingly abstract, but nonetheless very real as uh, a spiritual marriage. However, in responding uh, to that call, that yes has to be said. And I, I think they, a person who's called in consecrated life, now priesthood is an additional kind of consecration, which is a dedication set apart. But then of course, you've got the Eastern church, which also has married priests and, you know, everything is valid and everything's true, but it's just a different way of operating. But that, yes, that, that sincere, heartfelt, I do has to be present. Yeah. And, um, and all of those conditions have to surround it, you know, the, whether they are of good health, good head, good heart, and good humor, and all those other things are, but that's been tested in the religious community wherever they've been. 
or the seminary, depending on if they're going to become a priest, and then following that, several many years of formation, and then followed by that profession. So, so Sister yes. Mary Eucharist, I'm talking with today on the program, and um, we are heading up towards the great solemnity of the body and blood of our Lord, the, the Corpus Christi, sort of the traditional name of this um, Sunday's feast day in ordinary time. Sister, uh, it I want to connect everything that you've been sharing so beautifully about the bridal concept of one's relationship with Christ, where we are receptive, and yet there's a way in which this is the reverse of what happens in the Eucharist in receiving Holy Communion. We are uh, receiving, well, no, I guess that's, he. Be, uh, what I was going to say is there's kind of a mutuality here because we are receiving him who's coming to us, but he becomes receivable by us, which is amazing, right? To, to think that the God of the universe is so passionately in love with us that he becomes receivable, consumable by us. And in that very act of becoming consumable or receivable, we are taking up that posture of receptivity, of receiving him. So it's kind of a mutuality there. Oh, totally. And in fact, God is a beggar. God is a beggar. He is begging for our love. And the fact that Jesus not only became human for us, but became a baby in his mother's womb and then born helpless, gurgling, ga, 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 ma, 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 pa, 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 you know, going through all of the language things that we all went through and not disdaining this, but loving it, and then exchanging himself, I mean, putting himself out to us as bread to be consumed. That is this little unleavened, you couldn't get more humble than to become food for these creatures who are not angels and who are physical. Oh my goodness, the humility of the Lord. This is where Father Gill, I'm sure, would wax very eloquent and become even slower than his normal, very slow, you know, very, uh, uh, I would say, matter for contemplation. God is a beggar and God becomes so humble. He becomes a little wafer of bread to be consumed by us and then to become us so that we can give him back to the world. Now, the part that I can't get over is we have Jesus. We bring, we bring the bread and the wine up at the offertory. It is offered to God in a sacrificial way. And then the, 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 the words of consecration are pronounced, which transubstantiate those bread and wine offerings into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. So now we become Jesus. And then Jesus we go back up in procession to receive him and then he becomes us in our bodies because everything we eat becomes part of us. So look at the transformations that have occurred there and it starts with God and it ends with God. And, and but it's the body of Christ. The body of Christ comes forward and gives he gives himself to us as bread for the world. 
Amen. That's really, really powerful. Sister, um, uh, one of the things I, I didn't mention about Sister Mary Eucharista, folks, that if you've been on um, with me, uh, with her um, in, in the past few months, uh, I've mentioned the important work she does at the Immaculate Heart Retreat Center um, on the South Hill of Spokane. It's a beautiful setting. And they have a number of lovely uh, events, uh, days of prayer, days of reflection, weekend retreats. And, and I know there's a, um, a serenity weekend retreat coming up, sister, uh, that I'm going to hopefully I'm trying to get on the calendar of Father Weston. Um, so we're going to see if we can uh, make it work. Uh, Father Tom Weston, a Jesuit, is uh, giving this re retreat weekend. It's um, beginning on the 16th. So it's a week from Friday until Sunday at one o'clock in the afternoon. So Sunday, uh, Friday the 16th at six o'clock to Sunday at 1 p.m., a serenity weekend retreat, nothing fancy, something simple, the practicality and power of the 12 steps, living in recovery. It's so fascinating, sister. Um, my wife and I were talking, Carrie and I were talking about this concept of recovery on our Friday program, our faith and, and family program, just a few weeks ago. And and it's funny because people have reached out to us and said, um, how do we experience recovery in a faith context and in a Catholic context? And so I'm like, wow, this is such an easy win to just reference Father Weston. Do, do you know do you know much about his approach or about this uh, weekend? Father Weston is one of my favorite people in the whole world. He is uh, he is the foremost, I mean, in our opinion, foremost uh, speaker for uh, twelve step retreats. And uh, you know, uh, oftentimes people in recovery, which means from uh, addiction to some substance, whether it be alcohol or uh, you know uh, any kind of yeah drugs whatever pornography sex yes. there's all yes. kinds of yeah all kinds and you know by the fact that we are human we have the ability to become addicted and in many cases we are addicted and don't know it uh to something um and there are those with addictive personalities as well which sometimes just need following the 12 steps which were developed by a man named bill and uh by the um by a catholic priest um, this is a Catholic way to live. When you are following the 12 steps, it brings moderation and uh, a proper pathway to understand uh, our human condition, which is completely unable to uh, go forward without God's help. And I think that very helplessness is well articulated in the 12 steps. But Father is... Um, I know that in the picture he's wearing that hat. He did lose his hat, unfortunately, and we're all sad about it. But he's he's truly an, an edification. He speaks very frankly about our helplessness. I asked him one time, um, so Father, uh, what are you going to, um, like, uh, so, so this weekend, uh, so I'll be taking you back on Monday or on Sunday afternoon, and how is everything going to go for you till then? He said, well, sister, hopefully... With God's help, I will make it through the next hour and I will be sober. And I said, thank you, Father. It took me a moment to realize what he was talking about. And I realized it's it's about God's help. He said, 
I cannot count on my own power. I have to count on God's power. And this is a lesson in being a human. And anyone who thinks that they are better than someone going to a recovery program or to AA should think again, because this is not an easy path. And it involves great self-discipline and a whole new way of understanding life. And, you know, the Eucharist can help us with this. Receiving the Eucharist can bring us to uh, the foot of the altar, realizing Jesus made himself so humble that he came to us as bread. This, uh, this mystery of our uh, attachment to substance and to things and to addictions is, uh, is a, it can be broken by this, this, this great mystery of our, our Savior being crucified, rising again, and coming to us as bread to strengthen, sustain, and assist us. And anyone with this, uh, with an addiction can come and be present for this. On the same weekend, there's a 24-hour retreat with Father Tom Lamana and Deacon Bob Fish, who is um, one of our, uh, our, our present uh, auxiliary president's brother. So she's um, uh, Jan Stripes. Her, her brother is um, Deacon Fish. And so this is a, another wonderful retreat that I think people will get a lot out of. And it's about uh, embracing the loving kindness and tender mercy of God. It's called welcoming grace. Yeah, amen to that. Uh, Sister Mary Eucharista, she directs programs and retreats and oversees lots of amazing things at the Immaculate Heart Retreat Center. Uh, if you're watching the video version of this, you see the pages that we're referring to. If not, I do encourage you to go to the website of uh, Immaculate Heart Retreat Center, which is ihrc.net, ihrc.net, the Immaculate Heart Retreat Center. And there you see events. You click on the events page and it'll take you right down through. And then there's Sisters, Silent Day of Prayer. We'll talk about the trouble of guilt later, Sister. We want to keep us focused thought. on the Eucharist yeah. here. There's so right. much to be grateful for, right? I think um, I, I I remember a um, very, my spiritual director for years, what a gift and just such a holy priest of God and an amazing philosopher. He talked, the phrase that he would use was to learn to live well with our brokenness. That the grace of the Lord often heals and heals as in restores heals as in um, freeing, but sometimes on earth in a world that's not yet fully experiencing the redemption that Christ won, the freedom that the Lord provides for us by his grace is the capacity to live well with our brokenness. That That's the healing. And so that makes me, it feels like there's some overlap with the 12-step program. And so it's not, okay, undergo the 12 steps and you'll overcome and, and no longer be an addict. But rather, there's a sense of saying, I can acknowledge that this is a feature of my life, but I don't have to live badly with this feature. I can learn to live gracefully. I can learn to live well with it, but it's part of the limitations that we all have in life and I can learn to live well with mine. Absolutely. It is about freedom 
and that freedom cannot really come 100% until we reach eternal life. Um, and some people's freedom will never really resemble the kind of freedom Jesus wants us to have because there are so many things that attach us to this world and to the addictions that afflict us. But um, it, you know, that limitation will always be part of the landscape of a person, once an addict, once a person who has suffered addiction and realizes it, once they realize it, this is where their entire life changes. And will they ever go back to their addiction? Most likely, the minute that they stop going to the sacraments or reflecting deeply or thinking that I don't need my weekly meeting or my daily meeting. I knew a priest who only discovered he was addicted to alcohol when he was 73 years old. And the, the day that he realized it, he started going the, uh, that very day to um, Alcoholics Anonymous, or it was, an, it was a 12-step meeting. And he would go sometimes to two a day because he said, I am so free. I am so grateful. Why did no one ever tell me before? His doctor told him one day. He said, Mark, what, uh, when are you going to go to AA? And he's like, <laughs> AA? Why would I go to AA? He said, because it's just healthy. And he's like, wait, do you think I'm an alcoholic? And he said, yes, I do. And I thank that doctor for his honesty because my friend, he was my, my parochial vicar when I was growing up in my parish in California. He went that day to his first AA meeting and never stopped until he died. But in fact, one time he took a trip with me down to Cottonwood to see a sister friend of his. And um, he was worried because he said, you know, there's gonna be a few days there and I don't know what it will be like not to have my meeting. Um, but I, you know, I'm retired, so I'm gonna rely on the grace of God for this time. And he did, and he was fine. Of course, he was with me the whole time, so he didn't have any doubts that I wasn't gonna let him slip up on anything. But he, uh, it was, he, he was completely, as long as he was going to those meetings, he was healed. But it was a matter of uh, serious self-discipline, but also you cannot rely on yourself. You have to rely on what they call a higher power, which is God. It's the grace of God. Yeah, that's Sister Mary Eucharista joining me today on the program. And we're talking about all kinds of things, Sister. Uh, oh, boy. And I just, we're just going with the flow of the Spirit, right? And Absolutely. Uh, so here's a... Um, gosh, a heartbreaking story. So I was uh, an executive coach for a very successful um, senior executive, a woman, and she wanted me to meet with her boyfriend. And they were pretty serious, but he had um, he had an addiction to um, drinking. And when he, um, when, when he didn't live well with that addictive tendency, he would also fall into drug use. And so I met with him and he at this point was in recovery and he had a sense of the steps he needed to take, but he was really struggling with maintaining sobriety because he would be sent on trips where he would be vulnerable and it wasn't going to be easy to access the kind of support that you're talking about, the, the recovery groups. Right. And, um, and so I, when I met with him, I said, look, depending on how much is at stake, you take whatever action you need to take 
to be able to um, realize the good that's there. And so I'm like, don't go on the trip. Well, I, I can't, I'll lose my job. Lose your job, right? I mean, what's at stake here, right? And he says, well, no, I, I, I'm i going to keep my job and, and I have to go on the trip. And I'm like, well, under what conditions are you able to remain so sober um, when you're away on a trip? And he said, well, if I had somebody with me, take take your roommate. Well, that would mean I have to, uh, you know, the business isn't going to pay for that. You pay for the ticket. You pay for the ticket, the hotel room. You pay him money to be there for you while you're away. And he's like, "That's this is just too much. It's just too much. And I kept saying, you do know what will happen if you don't. You know what's going to happen. Why would you put that at risk thinking that somehow this time will be different? Well, he took in what I had to say. He says, it makes sense. I'm going to go ask my roommate. I'll pay him money. I'll pay for his ticket. I'll uh, you know, give him a daily fee while I'm there, all for the sake of maintaining sobriety so I can be in relationship with this woman that I love. Didn't hear anything. A few weeks later, I got an email from my uh, executive uh, coach, uh, client. So-and-so was discovered dead in his hotel room. He had overdosed. He didn't take his roommate. He left the meeting, fell out of that awareness of what was at stake. And he just was thinking, this time will be different. This time will be different. I have what it takes on my own. I won't fall into it. And sure enough, the overdose was so great that he ended up dying. Even in addiction, even a person's brain is different. And this is where, you know, PET scans of a person who is addicted and not under some sort of, you know, in, you know, in sobriety and following a program. Um, it is a very, very difficult I've never heard thing. that before. That's so, that's so striking, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, I, I recognize it as a truth in the spiritual life that sin darkens the intellect, right? But if you want to say acting out of addictive tendencies will lead to a darkening of the intellect, that makes sense. But also it's like there are, um, especially pornography becomes so much of an addiction that it it forges um, a, a place, a pathway in the brain that is stronger than heroin or cocaine. Oh, goodness. And, and this is where PET scans have been very helpful to show where a person is in relation to their addiction. Um, and I mean, I'm sure there are other discoveries out there that are very, very helpful for those who are um, on that road to try to, to gain sobriety in whatever manner they can. Right. Well, and, and I think that um, what you know, one of the other like rules of the spiritual life is what shows up in an extreme by analogy is often present as well in our own lives to a lesser degree. So I think that even if like people listening are like, well, I'm never going to be, you know, overdosing and that's not my thing. But are we unaware of the way that we are attached? Let's maybe not use a word addicted if that's a triggering word for some, how we are attached, a spiritual word, experience a degree of bondage to certain sins in our lives that become entry points, vulnerable places for us to be 
spiritually wounded, demonically influenced, and can be damaging those around us, right? That's a, I think that's part of it as well. And why we need Jesus in the Eucharist. Right. Well, the world, the flesh, and the devil are the three obstacles to grace. And if we don't receive the sacraments, on some level, one of those is going to be, you know, affecting us on some level. So we, we just have to know that Jesus, and, and again, in addiction, that's another thing to receive communion, you know, daily and, re- and go to the sacrament of reconciliation as often as possible, and even every week if necessary, if that's what it's going to take, because confession, you know, the sacrament of reconciliation is not there just to confess our sins. It is there so that we may be healed in that weakest place where we are. And uh, for some people, they've even gotten the sacrament of the sick for things that are addictive. And I mean, addiction can be uh, an inhibitor for a valid sacrament of marriage. I mean, there are things here that are very much at stake. And the Eucharist is our salvation, that he, uh, that Christ is our Lord, and he is our bridegroom. Amen. Well, Sister Mary Eucharista, thank you so much for being with me today. Believe it or not, we are at the end of our program. Sister, you filled the time with such gracefulness and such light. I really appreciate the dialogues we've been having on these programs. I know it's a blessing to many. It's a blessing to me. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And I just have to say, it was all my husband, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> we end where we began. That's exactly. right. Jesus Elliot of you. So, oh, wonderful. Thank Thomas you so much, Elliot. sister. God bless you <laughs> all. Welcome. And join me tomorrow for more another program. Thank you, Tom. <laughs>